Welcome, everyone. How's everyone doing? Woo! Yeah! Where's your bike? Where's my bike? Oh, I should have had a bike. I looked up those bikes. They're crazy expensive. <laughs> I, I was like, we should get one for the stage. And I was like, not on Mesne's budget. Uh, guys, tithe. Giving will be at the end. Um, <laughs> Good morning, I'm Josh. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm the pastor here at Resonate. And uh, can we just thank Omid and the band and leading us in worship. And, um, Omid might stick around there at the piano and interrupt me uh, throughout the message if he so is inclined. Um, last, uh, about four weeks ago, we launched uh, Resonate into a new season. And when we did that, it was the last worship song of the day. And this place was packed in. And I was like, this is going so well, this is so awesome. And then it dawned on me that we had literally, like, we had included no space in which to invite you all back. And so I was like, oh my gosh, well, what can we do to get people back in this space? What can we do to invite you back in? And, uh, it was, you know, we had Treasures coming, who was Joy, who was one of our founders, who was coming in here to talk about her nonprofit. And I thought that was going to be amazing, but I was like, we still need, like, more, we need other stuff. And the strategy team, which was sort of responsible for all of Resonate's newness, um, had joked one time that we should, the, on October 30th, the day before Halloween, have a churchwide costume party and do the theology of the Stranger Things. And it was a joke, and we all laughed about it. And then in the course of that last worship song, I was like, it's happening, we're doing it. So I came out and announced it like it was a real event. But here we are. We found every light bulb in Santa Monica. And uh, we're here, and we're doing it. So without further ado, I present to you the theology of the Stranger Things, and I'm really excited to do this this morning. Little caveat here, I know that some of you have never seen this show, and that's totally fine. I'm gonna try and give as much context as possible, um, so don't worry about that. The main thing here is that we're gonna be going through a passage in John 15. Uh, we're gonna see what this show says about community and friendship and what Resonate looks like in the context of, uh, of even Stranger Things. So let me pray for us, and then we can get going. God, I'm so grateful uh, for mornings like this. This is so much fun. You know, and I think that's something that in church we, we miss sometimes. We should be able to come here and just gather together in laughter and joy and come, come together over something as silly as a TV show. Uh, but Lord, I pray that you would shine through this morning, through this story, because this is an amazing story we're going to tell this morning. But as we've learned in our series, Lord, I think that every story kind of carries with it a piece of a grander story. And you are that grander story. There is no story more compelling. So I pray that you would shine through this morning. Amen. So let me uh, start with the passage that we're going to roll through this morning. And this is what I think kind of sums up stranger th things for us. This is John 15, 11 through 17. If you want to look it up, if not, it'll be behind me. Um, it says, I have said these things to you so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. This is my commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than to give up one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I have heard from my father I have made known to you. I, you didn't choose me. But I chose you and appointed you so that you could go and produce fruit and so that your fruit could last. As a result, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. I give you these commands so that you can love each other. So if you've seen Stranger Things, the show, there's a, a, a quote that keeps going and a theme that goes through the entire show. And that's friends don't lie. And so in this story that we're going to be going through this morning, there's a commitment to relationship. There's a commitment to relationship so deep that they're actually able to gang together and accomplish the impossible. 
And that has a lot to say about who we are in this space, so I'm really, really pumped to dive in. So we're going to break down uh, this morning in classic Stranger Things style. Stranger Things is eight episodes, or as they call them, chapters. So what we're going to do is we're going to break it into three chapters, and I'll talk about three. Chapter two is all about numbers. So we're going to do three chapters this morning. Chapter one is entitled Low Hanging Fruit. This is the obvious stuff. This is the stuff that's like glaring, like, okay, I can see how the Bible and Stranger Things would line up. And then chapter two is called Numbers, in which this is going to be the best thing you've heard in church all year or the most boring part of my message. And then chapter three is called Friends Don't Lie. And this is where we're going to stick most of our time this morning. We're going to focus on what it means to be in relationship and what this show shows us about friendship and meaningful uh, community. Are you with me? All right, good. Chapter one, low-hanging fruit. Um, So if you haven't seen Stranger Things, let me give you like a quick recap. Uh, After a 10-hour-long Dungeons & Dragons game, a boy named Will Byers is taken by a monster in the woods. This is the culmination of my uh, evangelical upbringing in Dungeons & Dragons fear. My mom always said that would happen. So there's, uh, he gets taken... By a monster in the woods, his three friends, Mike, Lucas, and Dustin, search for him and wind up uh, finding an escapee named Eleven. And Eleven has escaped from the bad men. And uh, the bad men turn out to be some sort of government agency shrouded in mystery. Um, and it's been running experiments on sort of X-Men type children. The friends soon find out that Eleven has powers and that Will wasn't just missing, but he's been taken by the monster, which is later referred to as a Demogorgon. Uh, Will's mom, Winona Ryder, goes crazy pretty fast and realizes that her taken son is trying to communicate with her through light bulbs, thus all the light bulbs, and uh, Eleven leads the three friends to eventually kill the monster, sacrificing herself. Will's mom and a saucy Indiana Jones type police officer find their way into the upside down, the dimension in which the Demogorgon lives, much like our world, but darker, creepier, and full of glowing eggs and former victims. They save Will, bring him home. So I'm skipping over so, so much, but that's a really quick, dense little recap. I'm skipping over Barb, but if you know anything about the show, that's totally fine. So, (laughs) bare bones, Captain Obvious, how does this relate to theology and scripture? And there's a couple of amazing, glaring examples uh, to set us up. So the show's main protagonist is Eleven. And we can see from the show, right from the bat, she's sort of the Christ figure. And the obvious thing is that she lays down her life for her friends. So she sacrifices herself at the end to kill the monster, right? So that's the obvious part. But if we look a little deeper, her name is Eleven, but they call her El throughout the entire show. And El is actually a Hebrew word for God, Elohim. So this, this, there's, there's symbolism in even her name. The Demogorgon is a symbol for the forces of evil that the scripture personifies as Satan, and lives in the Upside Down, a version of our world that looks similar, but is devoid of human life, and it's dark, and it's creepy, and it's bleak. And the Upside Down is a mirrored version of our reality. We could compare that to sort of the Christian version of heaven and hell. Um, If Eleven is the Jesus figure here, then the three uh, friends could be, like, sort of related to, like, the disciples. And it's really apparent, because they're bickering all the time. They're constantly questioning how Eleven is doing... Yeah, I nailed that costume. Constantly... (laughs) questioning what Eleven is doing and how she's using her power. And in fact, when Eleven doesn't save Will like they think he's going to, they split up and they break up. So there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of um, really cool, sort of very obvious biblical uh, links here. But that's just the surface. We need to dive deeper. And so we're going to dive deeper. And this leads me to my nerdiest talk, chapter two, Numbers. If you've been going to Resonate for a while, I promise I'm going to retire this old chestnut. But if you've been going here, you'll realize that I am fairly obsessed with the number seven. 
So I was super bummed that 11 wasn't named 7, but there's always season 2. Uh, 7 isn't just some Da Vinci Code-like nonsense. What, what 7 is is like a wink and a hint. So if you read through Genesis like we've been doing uh, at Resonate, we've been going through sort of the major stories in the early section of the Bible. We're going to go all the way through to the end of the year to the birth of Jesus, culminating Advent, Christmas. Um, but if you, if you look at Genesis in the early stages, the way that the Bible begins is with seven Hebrew words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And obviously in English, it's not seven Hebrew words. But those, that sentence unpacks the entire story of creation. As we know, the story of creation is, is broken up into seven days. So there's a line with seven words in it, each one for each day of creation that's about to get unpacked. And it doesn't end there. From there, seven be, sort of becomes the symbolic number, and it's sort of like, pay attention when this happens. Like, uh, the world is poetically made in seven uh, stages, the, the days. Uh, when Joshua is told to march around the walls of Jericho, he does it seven times. When Jacob asks the forgiveness of his brother, he bows seven times. When Noah waits on God, he waits for seven days. When Jesus is asked how many times someone should forgive someone, he's asked seven times, and he doubles down and says seven times 70. So there's just seven, seven, seven. And you get to the point where you're like, why do they keep doing this? If you pay attention to the seven and the rhythm and the pattern here, scholars look at it and they say, well, when you see a seven, that's sort of a symbol that a divine order has been completed. And that's a very theological statement. Let me simplify that. It's a symbol that God has been doing something. He starts something into motion. And on that seven, it's finished. In the Bible, on the seventh day, God rests after creation. Like all of this kind of stuff, it, it shows that there's a plan. It shows that there's intentionality. It shows that God knows the beginning and the end. When we see a seven, we should go, oh, the author here, God, has got us. Those seven words that start the Bible are such a huge clue into the whole love and care of God because it says right from the beginning, you can take, you can, you can take it easy and rest in my story. I've got this because I know the beginning and the end, right? So it's super, super cool symbolism in Scripture. And this is why it made me so excited to do the theology of Stranger Things. I was doing theological backflips in my living room. <laughs> At the very start of the show, there's this 10-hour Dungeons & Dragons match. And I've never played Dungeons & Dragons, but it has to do with dice. And so you have to roll the dice, and someone comes up with a campaign, and the way that they move along in the campaign is based on the numbers that they roll. Okay, so Mike is leading the campaign in the beginning, and this is when Will is still around. He hasn't been taken by the monster yet. And he reveals that something dark and scary and big is coming. Something devastating is about to happen, and all the other boys look at each other, and they're like, not the Demogorgon. It can't be the Demogorgon. And then Will slams down the piece. Do we have that sweet gift? Yes, Demogorgon. It's the Demogorgon, and he reveals that you need to roll over a 13 if you're going to defeat this Demogorgon and win the game. They need to roll over a 13. And so they roll. Will's the one who rolls the dice. He rolls, and the dice scatter all over the ground. And so they have to go, and they're running, and they're picking up. And then Mom comes down and says, game's over, guys. It's past 10. So they all have to get up and leave. And Will finds the dice, and Dustin, the guy I'm dressed up as, says, don't tell him it's below 13, because if he didn't see it, it won't count. They all get on their sweet bikes to go home, and Will gets really honest with Mike, and he just turns to him and he says, it was a seven. The Demogorgon, it got me. Do we have that one? It was a seven. 
the Demogorgon got me. And that might be just a sweet coincidence and enough for me to just like try and go on a numbers right here. But <laughs> check this out. This is his last line before he is taken. And then next slide, please. It is also his first line when he returns. The Demogorgon, it got me. It got me the Demogorgon. Right before that, he said, I rolled a seven. If that is not enough to wet your theological whistle, go home now. <laughs> that is amazing. All right. So let's hold the things that we've learned so far. Foreshadowing the friendship, 11 and the bond that's formed, find will in the upside down. All of this leads us to chapter three and where we're going to be sticking a lot more time in this morning, and that is friends don't lie. So at the core of this show is community. And I think we all remember the sort of relationships we had when we were these kids' age. There's something about that like 11 to 13 marker where life is changing, you're in middle school now, and, and it, you're just vulnerable and raw. It's those late night sleepovers where you're able to sort of tell your secrets to your best friends, you're learning things about life together, you're all sort of walking together with sort of the assumption that we're all figuring this out. And with that assumption of we're all just trying to figure this out together, bigger relationships are formed. Those, those relationships, in my mind at least, I look back on those and I'm like, and some of us are lucky enough to have held on to some of those early relationships. But in my mind, there's like a hyper focus to those relationships. It's because we come from a period that's so vulnerable and so raw and we're all figuring it out together. And somewhere along the line, we begin to realize that being an adult means you have to have it all figured out, even though we don't, and we begin to pretend. And we pretend like there are things we just can't talk about anymore, vulnerable moments that we just can't have with people we're now in relationship with. And I think one of the biggest reasons Stranger Things is such a hit is because it points out that glaring hole in our lives with those sort of relationships. Harvard uh, has been doing this study of a group of men for over 75 years, and it's called uh, the Harvard Study of Adult Development. This was fascinating when I ran across this this week. It's the longest study that they've ever done like this. Most of these studies like lose funding or because it's been, it, like, it started in 1938, so this is like a generational thing and there have been several different heads. But Harvard has somehow kept this study alive. And they did this for 750 men and they broke them up into two categories. Remember, it's 1938, so they were probably only white males. Uh, there's one is the college sophomores who were enrolled at, at Harvard. So these are people who are enrolled at Harvard. They've got their lives together. They're on track. They're moving. They're going forward. And then the other half were a group of the poorest children in one of the poorest neighborhoods in Boston. And so they tracked these men from one from like the college age onward and then one from kid onward. Some of these men who are still alive are now in their 90s, and they've begun to track their children now and their wives and their extended families, and it's just grown into this huge, huge, huge project that Harvard is putting on. And they, they, they study like life markers. They come in and record conversations between spouses. They, they, like, they, they dig deep into these people's lives to try and figure out how a human develops, and especially what happens when you turn that corner into adulthood and how you develop as an adult. And tens of thousands of pages have been recorded in this study. It's just immense. It takes up an entire library at Harvard. And in their finding, this is Robert uh, Waldinger, who is the head of the study now. And this is a quote from him. Is they're, is they're looking into what, means a, what makes a meaningful life, what makes a happy life. 
Robert says this, in our findings, we have concluded that it isn't fame or money or working harder that leads to a fulfilled life. Rather, in all the studies that we have done, we can see that it is the relationships one is involved in that lead to true happiness. And this is fascinating. If you want to look this up, it's, it's, it's so layers deep. But now uh, Robert will go and he'll sp speak and do keynotes on sort of their findings. And the biggest thing that he says is that most people, when they get into a university or a college or they get into that phase of life where they've left home, all they've been taught is that you need to work harder, you need to get a great job, and your success in life and your identity in life is really defined by how much you do, right? And in the study, in this, this, this started in 1938, this long study, what they found is that no, it's actually the relationships that you're involved in. And they found this in multiple ways. One of the most fascinating ways was that like when uh, the sort of the pains of old age as they were getting into their 90s or stuff like that and, and bodies are starting to fail, things are starting to go a little wacky, the, the people who were in deep relationship reported less pain than the people who were not in relationship but may have had more wealth, more fame, more money, all of that kind of stuff. They reported more pain, more complaining about what's going on in life. And actually, the really fascinating part is the people who were involved in deep, meaningful relationships lived longer than those who didn't report any deep relationships. And it isn't about the number or the social circles that are running in. What they said is the time spent committing yourself to a relationship and growing with people in that relationship. That's the stuff that we hang on to. That's what matters most. And if, if this relationship thing can do that kind of miraculous stuff in our life, I really wonder what relationship with God can do. So I want to go back to that original verse. I've said, things, I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy will be complete. This is my commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than to give up, give up one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants any longer because servants don't know what the master is doing. Instead, I call you friends because everything I've heard from my father I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose and appointed you so that you could go and produce fruit and so that your fruit could last. As a result, and this is the most important part, as a result, whatever you ask for my name, Will be, or ask the Father in my name will be given to you. Pay attention to this last line. I give you these commands so that you can love each other. I give you these commands so that you can love each other. Jesus is saying that these commands, new and old, are all based around one thing, and that's to love each other. He even names it when he's asked what the most important commandment is. And what that means is that Jesus is calling us into relationship, and not just surface-level, baseline relationship. He's calling us into deep, deep relationship with each other. Now, we don't have to face many demogorgons in life, and I'm very thankful for that. We're not even really placed in a lot of situations where we physically have to lay our lives down for each other. But what Jesus is calling us into is, is, is that's the level of commitment. So how are we laying our lives down for each other? What does that look like? Not in like a, I'm going to lay myself in front of this bullet thing, but like, what does it look like just with your time? What does it look like to put someone else first and foremost, way above yourself, putting their life in front of yours? That's deep. That's hard. It goes against everything that we've learned, everything that that study has rallied against, too. 
the American dream that says gather, 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 get more stuff, get more fame, get more money. Stranger Things has a really interesting version of the American dream, and it looks like this. That guy. <laughs> <laughs> this character arc is fascinating. If you've watched the show, the dad is clueless. <laughs> But he's personified as sort of the, I've got it all together, I, you know, and, and I'm at the end of a cold cycle, all that kind of good stuff. But like, I don't want to watch a season of The Dad. I want adventure. I want risk. I want that deep friendship. I want the stuff that Jesus is calling us into. And we can do that right here and right now. Together, resonate, a church a community, we can join in these relationships and step into that risk, step into that adventure, step into this life, this crazy life that Jesus has called us into, this kingdom life. So if you remember that seven that they needed, or that he rolled to get the Demogorgon to take him, the biggest amount of foreshadowing in the show because the, the monster literally takes him afterwards, it said that they needed to roll a 13 to defeat the monster, a 13 or over a 13, I'm sorry. And so if you do the math here, 11 is introduced, 11, and then you have Mike, that's 12, and then you have Dustin, that's 13, and then you have Lucas, that's 14. When they defeat the Demogorgon, they get above the 13, and they do that because they are together. What we can accomplish together, we can never do alone. That's the main, main point of this show, and that's the main point of this morning. If we join in this, this relationship, if we join in what God is doing here, and we really, really put roots down, and we choose to know each other, to lay our lives down for each other, our lives are going to change, and I can assure you that with the very motto of the show, and that is friends don't lie. And so this morning, together, to grow in relationship together, we're going to engage in communion. And you'll know what Bobby's been doing here, and I think this is a perfect picture of Resonate. Bobby, if you get it yet. So you see the kids riding, and then you see the Santa Monica Pier, and then you see the upside down. This is a perfect picture of how we can engage with the community of Santa Monica. So sometimes we think that it's all just the surface level stuff, but there's hurt and there's real stuff going on in our city, and people need spaces like this where they can safely come and explore Jesus together. And so as you engage in communion this morning, we're going to come, we're going to engage in that story. There's a community table where you can be generous. You can drop your tithes and offerings. You can also drop, you, there's a um, communication card that you all put, get, take a second and fill that out. Let us know your email. Let us know your prayer requests and also anything that's going on in your life. Um, and as we do that, just sort of step by what Bobby's painting. Think about what's going on in the very city that we live in, and then this beautiful need for deep, deep, deep relationship. And carry that with you to the communion table, which is honestly where we engage in like the best relationship possible. And then we'll go to the community table. And if you need prayer, uh, Katie will be down there as well, praying with people. So let me pray for us as we start into this. And uh, yeah, God, I'm just so grateful uh, for good stories. I think it's clear from the scripture, it's clear from our lives, it's clear from the way that we gather around things that you love a good story. And I thank you for the parallels in this story and in our story and in the scriptural story and how this all come together and we can see beauty in life. And so Lord, as we engage in communion this morning, 
I just pray that your spirit would just be present and thick among us and that we would be so aware that you're in this space. We love you, God.